at the beginning of each Star Wars film. I don't know if, if you've seen the Star Wars films. Uh, you got to do some reading at the beginning of it. They make you do hard work. At the beginning of each Star Wars film, viewers have to read a long scroll before they see any action. Accompanied by John Williams' epic film score, this scroll prepares viewers for the story. It gives the setting, and it helps the story make sense. So today, with the part of the Bible that we're in, it could help to have this same kind of backstory scroll. So we're at, in John 1, we're at the beginning of a new movement of the saga, the saga of all the Bible. Now, at the very beginning of the whole saga, the whole story, at the very beginning, you know what happens. God created the heavens and the earth. But the earth wasn't always like it is now. In fact, the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 2, says that the earth was at once without form and void. Those words, without form, means unformed, chaotic wilderness. That word void means emptiness. So this means, at the very beginning, that earth was a barren wilderness that couldn't support life. Interesting. In her excellent book, Even Better Than Eden, Nancy Guthrie traces the story of wilderness as it unfolds in the Bible. We see this theme come up time and again. But from the beginning, we see, even the very beginning, wilderness isn't a problem for God. Genesis 1 verse 2 goes on to tell us that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The picture is of a bird hovering over an unhatched earth. And so what happens? God's word goes forth the spirit moves, and as Nancy writes, what was dark was flooded with light. What was chaotic came to order, and what was empty was filled with life and beauty and purpose. But if you know the story, you know that it wouldn't take long for chaos to take over the earth again. The people who God made rejected the God who made them. Everything unraveled after that. But still, God promises restoration. God has a plan to restore uh, the chaos, to, norm, to order, to bless those who once cursed him. And this plan takes us on a long journey. A long journey that brings us to the point of the Bible where we are today. Today, we arrive at another wilderness. This wilderness is east of the Jordan River. In this wilderness, a man named John the Baptist preaches. And John announces the work that God is about to do through one individual called the Messiah. And John recognizes the Messiah in a really familiar way. John sees the Spirit of God descend on the Messiah like a bird or like a dove. It's amazing. It's as if God is saying in this moment... That through this Messiah, who is called the Word of God, that he will bring new creation. And so what happens in this wilderness east of the Jordan River? What happens is that the Word goes forth, the Spirit moves, and again, chaos comes to order. And again, curse turns to blessing, and again, darkness turns to light. So if you haven't found it yet, follow with me in John chapter 1. Verses 34 to 51. 
It'll really help you to keep your Bibles open throughout our time, even just as a test for me, so that everything that we say this morning clearly comes from the Word of God. John chapter 1, verses 34 to 51. And this is a testimony of John, where the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Word of God. We get some of the main idea of this section like this. John the Baptist announces God's new work to save sinners through his Son, Jesus Christ. John the Baptist announces God's new work to save sinners through his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. As we go through our time, we'll organize it like this. Each paragraph, so we have three paragraphs in this section. Each paragraph answers really one big question. And that's how we'll go through each, each one of those, asking one big question. So first paragraph, just leading up to it, made me think of the groundbreaking 1990 film, Kindergarten Cop. Arnold Schwarzenegger famously asked kindergartens the profound questions in Kindergarten Cop. He asked them, who is your daddy and what does he do? (laughs) Everybody does a Schwarzenegger. This passage starts off similarly. The first paragraph answers the question, who is John the Baptist? The Apostle John introduced John the Baptist way back in verse 6 in chapter 1. And John the Baptist was the Apostle John's first witness in his courtroom. John the Baptist testifies of the truth about who Jesus is. And in verse 19, it's like the Apostle John double-clicks on, his, on John the Baptist's testimony. And now we see John the Baptist's full testimony here. In verses 19, really to thir- uh, uh, 34. So we see the main question of this first paragraph at the end of verse 19. It's quite simply, who are you? John. And we're told this question comes from priests and Levites from Jerusalem. 
Now remember, a little bit of background, that not all Levites, Levites is one tribe of Israel, not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. And ironically, John the Baptist fit this bill. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us that his, John the Baptist's dad was a priest and therefore a Levite. And it says, we're told that these priests and Levites who came to John are from Jerusalem. And why does this matter? Well, this matters because Jerusalem was the seat of power. This tells us that these guys weren't sent by the mid-level manager, priests and Levites. These guys were sent by the CEO, priests and Levites, the head honchos. So it's reasonable for us to wonder, why would these really important guys bother with John the Baptist? Why do they care about who John is? After all, this John the Baptist was on the outskirts of town. As we would put it, he's in the boonies. Verse 28, he's, he's in the outskirts. And yet, this guy's pulling a crowd. People come out to see John in droves. People start to talk about how much this Baptist fellow, that uh, the head honchos, start to take notice. Now, we're not told all of their motives of the priests and Levites. We're not told all why they came to John. But as the story continues, we see more about these priests and Levites. We see more about these characters. As the story continues, we see that these guys are interested in maintaining the status quo. See, the priests and Levites had a good setup going. They had a deal with their Roman occupiers that they would put up with them if their Roman occupiers allowed them to maintain a level of influence and authority. They had a good setup going. And so the thing is, figures like John the Baptist could compromise that setup. They could undermine it, could ruin it. That would not bode well for them. And so they're coming out to press, to interrogate John the Baptist. John, who are you? And we get negative answers to that big question before we get any positive ones. We get three quick denials. John the Baptist says that he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet. You might have noticed that John just offers the first denial before he's even asked specifically about it. He just says to them straight up, I'm not the Christ. I think John says this because this was largely the air people were breathing at the time. They just expected that the Christ would come soon. Now, I don't want to take this for granted, but just so that you know, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed one. So I hate to disappoint you if you, if you haven't known this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's one of Jesus' titles. So I think John knows this is the air people were breathing. And I, John probably knows, too, that there were plenty of guys in his time that were trying to make a name for themselves, that were probably claiming to be the Christ. In fact, these same honch, head honchos who come and interrogate John here, we see them later in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 when they interrogate the apostles Peter and John. And as they're commiserating together, they, they say that they reflect on how other would-be messiahs had rose up in their day and they had just fizzled out. I think John knows this dynamic. John knows that this has been going on. So John the Baptist is adamant. I am not the Christ. It's not who I am. It's not what I'm trying to do. And just a little side note. By the way, this is really humble for a guy who can draw thousands of people and make them come to the desert. Most guys who can do that, it goes to their head pretty quickly. So the priests and Levites, they're trying to figure out who he is, and they ask him another question about John's identity. They ask him, so are you Elijah? Now to us, this seems really random. 
And again, John denies it. It seems like a really random question, but this doesn't arise out of nowhere. See, God promised through the prophet Malachi in Malachi 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So apparently, some guys knew this prophecy, knew this promise, and would dress up like Elijah and pretend to be him. So was John the Baptist like one of those guys? Was he one of these phonies, would-be Elijahs? While other Gospels tell us that he did dress like Elijah, we were told about Elijah back in 2 Kings, we are told that John did emphasize repentance like Elijah did, but no, John the Baptist was not literally Elijah. Jesus would later say that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And I think that tells us, as Don Carson reflects, that John didn't detect as much significance for his own ministry as Jesus did. Again, John is an eminently humble man. So they're trying to figure out, John, who are you? And the priests and Levites, they ask him another question still. John, are you the prophet? Again, this, this probably wouldn't be the first question we would ask John, but it doesn't arise out of nowhere. It comes from Moses' expectation in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This expectation that God would raise up another prophet that's like him. And many expected that figure, the prophet, to be the Messiah. And John the Baptist, again, he denies it. That's not who he is. And so we could picture the priests and Levites at this point kind of throwing up their hands. Like, John, are you kidding me? Come on, you need to help us out here. Throw us a bone, John. We've got to give our bosses something better than what you're telling us. What's the deal? Who are you really? John says, you want to know who I am? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And if we heard that, we, just, we might say, John, that really doesn't help us much. Now, we're told John the Baptist quotes Isaiah here, and I think that will help us. So specifically, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And so to know what John means by what he says about who he is, it will help us to know the original context of Isaiah chapter 40. Now at this point in the book of Isaiah, the outlook is grim. Isaiah just finished describing one of, Israel, one of the southern kingdom, Judah's most promising kings. His name was Hezekiah. And he describes how Hezekiah compromises before a delegation from the neighboring empire of Babylon. And this compromise causes God to reassert an ominous prophecy that he's told them before. And he tells them again. He tells Judah, these Babylonian guys are going to take you into exile. They're going to boot you out of the land. And so the people from Judah will respond in the same way we might respond if we heard a warning like that from God, that you're going to be kicked out of your home. The question basically is now at the point in Isaiah, God, does this mean that you're done with us? Like forever. And Isaiah 40 comes. This is when Isaiah 40 comes. And the answer to that question, God says, no. God says, I will comfort my people again. God says, I will send a voice to clear the way for the exiles in Babylon to return to Israel. That's the original context. And this is part of a pattern for how God has always delivered his people clears the way for them. And John the Baptist is here saying that God will deliver his people again. And he will do so through the Messiah, his son. And this time, God will deliver his people from a greater foe than a physical nation like Egypt or Babylon. 
God will deliver his people from the greatest foe of their own sin. So John asked them, you guys want to know who I am? I'm the guy trying to get people ready for the new exodus that God will do through the Christ. That's who I am. And so we bring this to ourselves. None of us have the same unique role as John the Baptist. But all of us can form our identity, the sense of who we are. We can answer that question in the same way that John answered it. Brothers and sisters, all of us should have a humble identity like John. A humble identity that's defined by service to Christ. Humble servants of Jesus. That's who we can define ourselves to be. So maybe you're here and you're more like the priests and Levites in this story. You got a good thing going on in your life and you don't really want to upset the status quo. Maybe you find your sense of self in certain relationships, in certain roles or job that you have, or a certain activity that you do. Maybe that's how you define yourself. But what happens, my friend, when what you define yourself by is taken away? What happens then? Usually at those points in our lives is, are the worst points in our lives. What happens when the status quo you so enjoy inevitably gets upset. I would just implore you today, grab hold of this solid identity to be one who is saved and secured because of what God has done for you, not because of anything you have done, because of what God has done for you through Christ. As the old hymn says, all other ground is sinking sand. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we can form our identity the same way that John did. Humble servants of Jesus. And I want to encourage us that we don't have to wait until we get it together to have this identity. We don't have to wait until we start looking impressive to have this identity. We do not have to wait until we have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible to have this identity. We do not have to wait until we obtain mighty accolades in the Christian faith to have this same identity. Do you remember anything about the uh, Christians in Corinth, the ancient city? Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, we we see different things that they did. See, the Christians of Corinth got drunk at the Lord's Supper. The Christians of Corinth formed factions against each other. They bickered back and forth. The Christians of Corinth hung out in temples that had idols in them. And yet, what does the Apostle Paul call the Christians in Corinth in chapter 1? He calls them saints. He calls them saints. There's a little clue that Christian, our identity no matter how much good we do, will always be defined first and foremost by what Christ has done. So join John and define yourself in light of God's redeeming work that he has done through Christ. So the main question of the first paragraph, John, who are you? Second paragraph, verses 24 to 28, main question is, John, why do you do what you do? If the first paragraph focused on the nature of John the Baptist's identity, the second one focuses on the nature of John the Baptist's work. And the second paragraph is the same as the first. The Apostle John tells us about who presses John the Baptist with these questions. He tells, about, tells us about the group that comes to John, John the Baptist and interrogates him. 
And we get introduced to a group here in verse 24 that's going to show up again and again in Jesus' story. You probably have heard of them before. This group is called the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, is a little background, descended from the generation that survived the cruel government of Syria in the 2nd century B.C. This is the time between the Old and New Testaments. And so as they survived this, they, they became intensely serious about following every detail of the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law. They wanted to preserve their own identity, their well-intentioned, but what ended up happening is that they surrounded the Torah with their own rules and their own traditions and sometimes replaced God's rules with their own rules and placed burdens on people that they couldn't bear. We'll learn more about the Pharisees as we go forward in John. But here we see this group that the Pharisees influence asks John the Baptist another question. It says, John, why are you baptizing? John, we just we don't get it. If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then why are you doing this? This is a gotcha question. You know those? Maybe you've asked those before. This is a gotcha question. There, you see, there's, there's a question behind the question. You remember these guys, that they want to keep the status quo. They got a good setup going. So they come out to see some backwoods preacher who has started to pull people from their own crowds and they tell him, if, if you're not one of these people, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then John, who gave you the right to do what you're doing? John, what are you trying to accomplish with this? And just to press pause on this, just to time out, in light of these questions, Christian, don't be surprised when people ask you the same kinds of questions. Why, what are you doing? Why, why, are you, why are you making these choices? 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles there just means those who are outside the Christian community. And why does 1 Peter tell us that? Well, it's, it goes on. It says, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that when they speak of you as evildoers, there is no if in that sentence. There is a when in that sentence. Our conduct should be so honorable that outsiders start to notice. Our conduct should be so honorable that we start to hear the same questions that John the Baptist hears in this section. So a couple examples. Maybe your conduct is honorable through the attitude that you have at work. I think this is one of our best witnesses. One church member tells me that the status quo at his job is that people hate it. <laughs> people hate it and they act like it. I, I, this is me trying to say that your job is easy. I'm, I'm sure all of our jobs can be hard. But people, with God's help, people will notice a grateful, kind, persevering attitude that is genuine. And that comes ultimately from Christ. And if you persist in that, you will likely start to get questions. And maybe your conduct is honorable through your choices and your priorities. How you spend your time how you spend your money. I have lots of examples with this. You know, the status quo is for us to treat our homes like impenetrable castles with moats around them. But what if, what if we got the reputation that our homes were open for our neighbors? We 
may start to get questions. The status quo is to hang around people who look like us, who vote like us, and who talk like us. What if we got the reputation that we accept and listen to people without necessarily approving of everything that they do? We probably would start to get questions. The applications are endless, friends. The point is, is the nature of our behavior, is the nature of our priorities, our reactions, our speech, is the nature of all those things so different, so gracious, so devoted to Christ that it upsets the status quo and people notice. So what's John's answer to their question? John, why do you baptize? What does John say? Well, verse 26, he seems like he deflects the question. He briefly acknowledges that, yes, yeah, I, I baptize people, but then he turns to something else, someone else, really. It's like he turns to the Pharisees and tells them, you guys shouldn't be so much concerned about deciding who I am. You guys should be concerned about what the person I'm trying to get people ready for. That's who you should be concerned about. You guys think that I'm special? The person I'm getting people ready for, I'm not even worthy to be this guy's slave. That's the action of tying, untying somebody's sandals. That, that's a slave's act. So this is John the Baptist's ministry in a nutshell. He gets people ready for Jesus' arrival. In other places in the Bible, we're told that John the Baptist's baptism is a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance. So when people came to John to get baptized, they were essentially admitting to everybody, to all the public, they're admitting, I've gotten things wrong. When people come to get baptized by John, they admit that they have lived in the wrong way. They admit that their own wisdom and their own goodness are not enough. When people come to get baptized by John, they admitted that I'm going to drop my defenses. I'm going to get out of my own way so that the Christ can come and rescue me. My question for you is, are you ready to admit all the same things about yourself? My friend, are you ready for repentance? Because that is what it is. If we can boil down John's message to this, it's essentially this. We won't turn to the true Messiah until we've turned away from being our own Messiah. We will not turn to the true Messiah until we've turned away from being our own Messiah. John gives that same warning to the Pharisees with their self-proclaimed expertise. So how can we take up John the Baptist's ministry? How can we do the same thing that he did? Well, flight tickets to Israel are really expensive. Uh, so we, I don't think we're going to baptize people in the Jordan River. But we can point people to the greatness of Jesus. We can help lead people to repentance so that they receive Jesus. How do we do this? Well, I think John's example helps us do this. If we want to point people to the greatness of Jesus, then wildly enough, maybe, just maybe, we should start talking about Jesus like he's actually great. A wild idea. Have you heard this? They say, never trust a skinny cook, right? You heard that? Yeah, what's the logic behind that? The logic is, why should I think the food that you make is good if the person who makes it doesn't even like it? Chris, we fill churches like that. We want to convince other people of Jesus' greatness. Are we convinced ourselves? 
Do we speak to Jesus like he is great? Do we long to see him in his word? Do we speak to him personally in prayer? Do we walk humbly before him like John? Do we actively repent from our straying hearts to be closer to him? If we want to point people that Jesus is great, well, do we talk to him like he's great? How do we take up John's ministry? How do we do the same thing that he does? Point people to Jesus. Get people ready for Jesus. Well, I think like John, we do this when our faith in Jesus is the ultimate explanation for why we do what we do. John's ministry made sense. What he did made sense only because the Messiah is real. Does your life make sense if Jesus isn't real? It shouldn't, Christian. The greatness and the reality of Jesus should lie underneath, should be the ultimate foundation for why we live how we live. The decisions we make, the priorities we have, the attitudes we hold. This is just an example. We give a lot of examples with this. I remember talking to somebody who told me uh, that he doesn't really go to church. He goes occasionally. But the main thing he wants, he, he wants his kids to go to church. That's what he told me. And so I said, I said okay. He's, so I said, why? I said, well, he, he wants his kids to have good morals. That's why he wants to go to, them to go to church. I, I, okay, sure. I, I hope that's a byproduct of kids being here. But man, they can go to a lot of places besides church for that. I wonder, friends, is that really why we're here? I hope I'm here not just because this is a nice habit. I hope I'm here not just because this will make me a better person, though I, though I hope it does. You know why I'm here? I'm here because I'm convinced that Jesus is real. <laughs> I'm convinced that Jesus is amazing. That's why I'm here. Maybe we forget it all the time. That Jesus, that the Messiah is real and that he is great should be the ultimate explanation for why we do what we do. That's John the Baptist's ministry. So last question for the last paragraph. We've asked, who is John? Why did John do what he do? And finally, who does John point to? Who does John point to? All right, English teachers, before you get on me, I know I ended the question with a preposition, um, but that's how people talk. Uh, who does John point to? We get answers in verses 29 to 34. This paragraph shows us three truths about who Jesus is. This is the one John points to. First... John points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, where does this title come from? Just remember, John the Baptist, like John the Apostle who wrote this book, they're both Jewish. That means they grew up steeped in the Old Testament. That means they think in Old Testament terms and categories so do you ever wonder why the New Testament is filled with Old Testament references? I know that question must keep you awake at night. <laughs> One reason is because it shows Jesus' credibility. One reason is that even in this section, you see there's reference after reference to the Old Testament. It's a subtle way to tell Jewish readers that Jesus is not this, some leader of a fringe movement. That Jesus is the culmination of the plan of, that God has had all along. That's why there are endless references to the Old Testament. And so here, for, in this example, for this title, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, where else do we see that in Scripture? Where else do we see a lamb, especially in relation to sin? Well, I think the ultimate example, the most important place, is the Passover in Exodus. 
The Passover came during the last plague when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. During this plague, God would take the life of the firstborn in all the houses, mainly because of the rebellion of Egypt against him. But the bottom line is that everybody, including the Israelites, had rebelled against them. So God provided a sacrifice. God told the Israelites that a lamb could go in the place of the firstborn child, that when he saw the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, he would pass over them. That is the first and most important place we see the lamb in connection to sin in Scripture. But through the prophet Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53, God promised another lamb, a lamb who would be led to the slaughter. He calls him the suffering servant. This suffering servant carries the sins of his people. He is pierced for his people's transgressions. By his wounds, the sins of his people would be taken away. And so here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb who will deliver God's people in the new exodus, the exodus from their sin. He is the promised suffering servant. And the better news is that he doesn't just stand in the place of Israel. He stands in the place of sinners from every nation. takes away the sins of the world. In this first title, this is who John points to. This title is really important. This is the first thing John says when he sees Jesus. When John sees Jesus... Notice what he does not say. He does not say, see Jesus from far off. He says, behold, a great teacher. Behold, a great moral guide. No. Behold, the great and ultimate sacrifice for sin. Who does John point to? Second, John points to the one on whom the Spirit remains. The one on whom the Spirit remains. God told John that he would recognize the Messiah because the Spirit would remain on him. This is another aspect of the Messiah's identity that the Old Testament promises. Again, from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, promises a coming king in the line of David. Those verses say, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see, Jesus is unlike anybody who's come before him in the Bible. If you know anything about the Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament, you know that a lot of times the Holy Spirit would come to someone and empower them for a certain task and then would depart. Maybe a big example of this is the first king of Israel, King Saul. You might remember him. The spirit came to King Saul when he became king, but when Saul forsook God to do his own thing, the spirit left. And all of a sudden, King Saul's doing stuff like throwing spears at people. It's wild. And so here the Spirit descends on Jesus and remains on Jesus. And in just a couple of chapters, John will tell us how Jesus has the Spirit without measure. And that means here he says that Jesus is able to give the Holy Spirit to others, baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament promises. A place like Ezekiel 36 says that one day all of God's people will have the Holy Spirit. And John says here, Jesus is the one who will accomplish this. Who does John point to? He, he points to the Lamb of God. He points to the one who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Finally, he points to the Son of God. He points to the Son of God. Again, this is just rife with Old Testament significance. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's talking to David. And God promises King David that one of his descendants would be a king forever. 
But we keep reading 2 Samuel. We learn about Solomon. And then we learn about Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And then we keep reading king after king after king, first kings, second kings. And we notice that nobody really does well. Even the best of guys fail. And so we're waiting. And still this promise is here from 2 Samuel 7, 14. says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so here it is. Jesus, he sees in the wilderness that this is the son of God. And so here, this title doesn't reflect that Jesus was made. It reflects Jesus' royalty. It reflects that Jesus is the king they have waited so long for. This is who John points to. The Lamb of God. The one who's filled with the Spirit of God. The one who is the long-awaited king. The Son of God. Does anybody hear uh, text on their phone? I know, I know this is still kind of polarizing. I know a lot of you do because I text you, okay? Now, maybe you do the same thing that I do when I text. When I text, I can type something that's really warm and enthusiastic. I can use lots of exclamation points. I can type something that I try to be really funny, use a lot of ha-has, use a lot of LOLs. And as I'm typing those things, I can have a complete blank stare on my face. I can be completely stonewalled. And in fact, when I use a heart emoji, probably most of the times it looks like I want to punch somebody. There's this disconnect between this warm and enthusiastic message I'm typing and my facial expression. There's a disconnect between those things. Doesn't that same disconnect happen when we read the Bible? Doesn't it? We read a paragraph like John 1, 29 to 34. You're honest, like me, you could just be blank heard this before you know maybe the disconnect is there because we function like we can handle life on our own yeah, I might need the occasional improve, minor improvement I might need some guidance once in a while but you know all in all I think I'm doing okay you know if that's how we function no wonder the good news doesn't seem like that good of news anymore but here look at what's here look at what's here the eternal second person of the Trinity had to become human so that your sins could be taken away. What this is telling us, friends, is this, this is a problem that you cannot solve. We read about it earlier in Hebrews 10. All the people in the Old Testament, every year, the high priest had to sacrifice a lamb on the Day of Atonement. And sooner or later, that guy had to wonder, can an animal really take away the sins of a human? So let this sink in. What was impossible is now here. Your sins are taken away. They're gone forever. Jesus paid them all on the cross. You think of the entire Old Testament. You know, how did people do in trying to live how God wanted them to live? What grade did they get? They didn't do good. How have we done? Not too good either. And so, so here is Jesus who gives the Holy Spirit. It turned out we're a work in progress, but now we can actually have a new direction. Now we can start to live how we were meant to live. Now we can actually start wanting to live for God, not just feeling obligated to do it. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. And friend, look at the world around you. It's been a mess for a long time. But we'd be lying to ourselves if we said that we haven't contributed to that mess. We'd be lying to ourselves if we said that we haven't felt the pain of that mess. 
And we'd be lying to ourselves if we said, we haven't tried everything we can to fix that mess. Technology, medicine, pleasure, politics. And here's Jesus, the Son of God, the rightful King who promises to make all things new. This is who John points to. Take away that disconnect. John announces Jesus' arrival, and friends, I just let's let Jesus' arrival land on us like it's really good news again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for, for not leaving us in the darkness. Thank you so much for sending forth your word, moving by your spirit, and bringing blessing to those who cursed you. Jesus, thank you for taking the curse upon yourself that our sins may be taken away and so that we may be blessed in you. Lord Jesus, you are great and you are amazing. We want to know you more. We want to be better pointers to you. We want all of our lives to be explained by our faith in you. Lord, we just, we admit that there's such a gap that we see there. So we need your help. We need your grace. So please come and help us. For your glory's sake and for our good.